Greetings and welcome to What is California, a podcast featuring conversations with notable Californians in a quest to understand the Golden State. I'm your host, Stu Van Earsdale. On this episode, episode number 28 of What is California, we're going to talk fire because it's almost fire season and, I mean, to the extent it ever ends, right? Fire season seems to be year-round now, but we still want to kind of focus on the peak of fire season with our special guest today, Lania Quinn Davidson. Lania is a fire advisor for the University of California Cooperative Extension, as well as the director of the Northern California Prescribed Fire Council. It is exactly what it sounds like. It is a group uh, in Northern California that helps assess and execute prescribed fires around this region. And it's in a lot of ways to help mitigate and prevent the catastrophic wildfires that we've seen in recent years, help with forest management. It's a practice that has been going on for thousands of years in California. Indigenous tribes were doing it well before any of us were ever talking about it on podcasts. Lania herself has been in the business for about 15 years, and she's going to tell us all about what she does, what the council does, what the University of California Cooperative Extension does, and what it exactly means for California that prescribed fire is both a fundamental practice in wildfire prevention and mitigation, but also a practice not without some controversy, skepticism, uh, and aversion in the state as well. We're going to kind of talk about both ends of that spectrum and what Californians should know about prescribed fire and how we can utilize it in the years ahead as we see increasingly intense fires and extended fire seasons due to climate change and other circumstances. I got to be honest, this is one of my favorite episodes. I, I know I've said that a few times, but this is sincerely one of the best pure conversations that we've yet had on what is California. It's just super enlightening. Uh, Lania is super interesting. Her own family story, uh, being from Trinity County originally, uh, moving on to Humboldt County where she currently resides and works, and uh, her family background. She's a fourth generation Californian, and she has some pretty interesting folks in her family going back quite a way. So I just really loved talking to Lania. And when I think about what I've always kind of envisioned this show being, it's conversations like this about topics like this for listeners like you. So thank you very much for your listenership. Thank you for following. Thank you for subscribing. Thank you for sharing. I have recently received some really nice notes from folks who have uh, listened to the show over the last seven months since we launched. It's just been so gratifying to hear from you and know that you're enjoying the show. Thank you so much for getting in touch. I would encourage anyone else who has thoughts, comments, questions, uh, concerns, recommendations, guest suggestions, anything you got, you can reach me at hello at whatiscalifornia.com. As always, I would love to hear from you. And um, yeah, let's go ahead and get on with it. This is me with Lania Quinn Davidson on What is California? Enjoy. Lania Quinn Davidson, welcome to What is California. So excited to have you here. I'm excited to talk about your work with the University of California Cooperative Extension and the Northern California Prescribed Fire Council. But first, first, I got to ask you, what's your California story? Are you from here originally? And if not, how and when did you arrive in the state? Yes, I am deep California, actually. I was trying to think how many generations, at least four, 
Um, so my family's been in California for a very long time. And I was born and raised in a really tiny town called Hayfork up in Trinity County in the far northern part of California. And I was born at home and yeah, grew up there and went to UC Berkeley and Humboldt State for school. And yeah, I've just, I've, I love California. <laughs> What's Hayfork like? I mean, how many people are there? What's it look like? Hayfork, so when I was growing up there, it had about 2,000 people. And it's a really interesting place. And I actually think it's kind of a um, this metaphor for Northern California in general, because it's gone through so much change over time. It's a, you know, historically, it was a mine, there was a mining influence there, and then transitioned to logging. And when I was growing up, when I was in high school, our mill closed down because of the Northwest Forest Plan and Spotted Owl and all of the issues associated with that. And so we went through a major transition during that time um, and then became more of a pot growing community. So we have seen so much social change in my hometown and my mom still lives there. I now live over in Humboldt County, but have strong ties to Trinity County. Oh, okay. I got you. So what was it like growing up in Hayfork? Well, it's very rural. Uh, and, you know, I always say there are a lot of roads that lead to Hayfork, but very few people would go there unless they had a reason to be there. <laughs> it's not the kind of place that you accidentally pass through unless you're really lost. Um, so sure. it's it's a, a really small, tight community. Um, a lot of, you know, different kinds of people, people who have been there for generations and are ran in, in ranching or logging or, um, you know, other kind of locally based industries like that. And then more recently, a lot of new people have moved there. I, I kind of think of, of Trinity County and Hayfork as a last frontier in California. It was one of the cheaper places to buy property. And so as people started looking at, you know, growing pod and, and trying to get into that industry, it was one of the only places where people could buy land. So we've seen a real transition toward younger people, people from all over the world, um, hmm, okay. the Hmong community has really grown there since I moved away. Um, it's really an interesting place. <laughs> a lot of intersectionality around the, the types of people who, who go there. And now we're seeing that change again because of the legalization of marijuana. A lot of people yeah, are moving sure. out. And yeah, Hayfork's had a, a really interesting history. Got it. And so just a little bit ago, you're also saying that you now live in Humboldt County. So what drew you to Humboldt County and why did you settle there? Yeah, I came up to Humboldt County in 2007 for grad school. So I, I did a graduate program at, at Humboldt State, which is now Cal Poly Humboldt, and focused my work on prescribed fire and, and you know looking at the reasons why we weren't using more prescribed fire. And so my husband and I moved here and we never left. <laughs> I realized we've been here now for, for quite some time and just really love this place. Humboldt County is so diverse, not only socially, but also ecologically. So we can be on the beach and we can drive inland 45 minutes and be in the snow. Um, we can be in old growth redwood forests or knobcone pine forests or, um, or, you know, anything you can imagine we have here in, in Humboldt. Right, exactly. And so how has Humboldt County and your part of California changed since you've been there? Well, I mentioned a little bit about how Trinity County has changed, and I, we're seeing some of those same patterns here in Humboldt County, just with the you know changing economies and and shifting priorities. But another thing that we're seeing in Humboldt is that we're really becoming kind of a fire and climate change refuge for people in California, and so we're seeing our housing markets really 
go through the roof. Um, we're seeing a lot of people move here when they after they lose their homes from these fires inland. We're seeing people come here for the good air quality and you know just the the cooler temperatures. So I really think that that the North Coast is going to change a lot in the coming decades. And I think we're going to see a huge influx of people wanting to live here. What's that been like in terms of trying to absorb that population and trying to kind of assimilate the newcomers to Humboldt County? I think it can be a real challenge to accommodate, you know, for the, like, especially with housing, as more people want to move here and people who have a lot of buying power, you know, they're, they're coming from places, this is a cheaper area to buy housing. So I think people who are my age, young professionals who are looking to buy their first home, you know, who have been here for a long time, are kind of getting outpriced and, and unable to establish themselves here. So I think that's a real challenge is that a lot of the people who who live here and care about this place are um, not able to get a foot in the door on on continuing to live here. And so I think we'll, we'll see that increase, you know, it, that challenge will not go away with time. What is your earliest memory of California? I think my earliest memory is actually backpacking in the Trinity Alps. Um, which are, is this beautiful area in my home county. And my family was really into backpacking. So we started backpacking when I was four years old. And that's actually my first memory is backpacking into an area called Morris Meadow um, in, in the Trinity Alps, which is just a beautiful place. But it was, it's like an eight or nine mile hike. So for a four-year-old, I remember being a little um, <laughs> tired and <laughs> dehydrated. <laughs> <laughs> Mom. <laughs> and rattlesnakes and, you know, yeah. all of that. Oh, I, no. <laughs> Do you have another most enduring or significant memory of California since then? So my family used to spend uh, a lot of time in Mexico when I was a kid. We'd go down there and spend three or four months a year um, living in a, in a certain part of Mexico. And then I always remember coming home from those trips and we had, you know, we loved those trips and it was such a valuable part of my childhood, but it was always such a great feeling coming home. And I remember getting into range of our favorite radio stations in Northern California. And like, you know, that's when you knew you were home was when you, you got into range of those radio stations and then we'd go over the mountains from Redding and, you know, we'd cross into Trinity County and it was just such I felt so I feel so connected to my home. And so um, that, you know, being gone for so long, then it was just this real pull back to, to those, mm, those yeah. places that I love. I love that. So who are some Californians who have influenced you over the years or impacted you and who you are personally? Well, I would say first off, and this is probably like an obvious answer, but my my parents are kind of like these quintessential Californians. And uh, my mom grew up down in Southern California. My dad grew up in the Bay Area, but they ended up moving to Trinity County to, you know, to start a family and to live a more simple life and to be in a more rural environment. And these two are just absolute adventurers, um, creative people, always trying to figure out how to do a lot with not much, <laughs> you know, not not focused on making a lot of money or or any of that, just focused on being good parents and and being connected to their place and, and to their community. So I really think they defined a lot of who I am. And I could say the same about my husband's family. Um, he grew up in a really interesting 
and another another cool, interesting California story. He grew up on a on a commune in Mendocino County. And um, this group of people have been, you know, kind of intentional family and not necessarily blood related, but um, together for 50 years traveling and, and doing amazing things and, um, you know, managing and stewarding this ranch that they have in Mendocino County. And, and that, that group has really influenced who I am as well and being compassionate and working with other people and having enduring relationships. Intentional family sounds kind of like a, a very distinctly California thing too. I, I know it not, isn't necessarily a distinctly California thing, but it sounds like one, doesn't it? <laughs> it, it definitely does. And I, I think that's true. This idea that, you know, ca- Californians redefine, I think, we're very comfortable redefining things and um, changing the way that we think about issues and about family and about friends and relationships. And I, I just think that's so powerful and and doing it with warmth and, and love. I think those are all real Californian traits. What about geography? How do locations or terrain or buildings, roads, space, how does that influence or impact who you are? Well, I think coming from a very rural place, landscapes are really important to me. And, you know, in particular in California, I'm really connected with and and feel strongly about our Mediterranean climate. And I I think it it took me a long time to realize that that was a Californian thing, Um, you know, that a lot of the rest of this country doesn't have that climate and doesn't have those extended dry periods in the summer and then the wet winters. And, you know, for me working in fire, which I know we'll talk about more, um, the Mediterranean climate is critical and it's kind of a core element of our fire regimes in California and in the work that I do. So, um, yeah, the, the golden hills in the summer, you know, my, my sister's wife went the first time she was here in California. She's like, why are the hills so brown? Why is all the grass dead? Uh, you know, and we're like, well, that's, that's natural. That's the way it is in California. It's really kind of a, um, a beautiful thing about California, but it does seem odd to people who aren't used to that climate. It's not dead. It's just sleeping. (laughs) It's waiting to burn. (laughs) Yeah, that too. (laughs) Um, do you have a favorite California place? I think my favorite California place is to be on the river. I, I love being on rivers. And, you know, I grew up in Trinity County. We have some, some beautiful rivers there. The South Fork of the Trinity River um, was one of my favorite places growing up to go, you know, hang out in the summer. And now my family and I are really into rafting. So we do a lot of rafting on the Trinity River and um, on other, the, the Eel River and then other rivers around this area. The Smith River is just gorgeous. So I find that I'm always drawn to a place where I can be warm and swimming and enjoying time with friends. You mentioned fire a little bit ago. We might as well just pivot to that. I mean, where where do you work and and what do you do there? Yeah. So I am a fire advisor with the University of California Cooperative Extension. Um, And I'm also the director of the Northern California Prescribed Fire Council. And really my work centers almost entirely on prescribed fire, the using fire as a beneficial tool to manage our landscapes. Um, you know, this is this is something that I think many of our listeners probably know is increasingly important um, as we deal with these, you know, incredible wildfire problems that we've been having and, and really trying to find solutions and trying to find space where people can be a part of nature and actually rebuild that balance and restore fire as a process. What exactly, for the record, for our listeners, what is a prescribed fire? So a prescribed fire is 
it, it, it's when you're actually using fire, you're purposefully putting fire on the ground to achieve some kind of objective that you've thought about in advance. So we use it for a lot of different things. It's, um, you know, we obviously use it for fuels reduction and to decrease the risk of wildfire uh, or to decrease the impacts of wildfire. But we also use it for things like invasive species control and for, you know, cultural reasons. Indigenous people have been using fire for thousands of years in California. Um, we use it to improve our rangelands and to decrease woody encroachment on our oak woodlands and in our grasslands. So it's just this hugely versatile and powerful tool for um, restoring fire on the landscape. How does a prescribed fire work? Like where, where would you have them? Who works on them? And so forth. Yeah, well, again, it, it varies. So a lot of different kinds of people use prescribed fire. Like I mentioned, ind indigenous people have been using fire for, you know, forever in California to, to promote certain food resources, to open up the forest and make it more resilient um, for things like basket weaving materials. You... Ranchers use it to um, improve their, you know, like to promote certain grasses and to, to really keep things open so that there are a lot of food resources for their cattle. Um, and then, think, you know, the, the Forest Service and other um, forest land owners use it to make forests more healthy and more open and more resilient. So it really depends. We're using it in California on private lands, on federal lands, on state lands on tribal lands, <laughs> and for all these different reasons. How and when did you first get into fire and prescribed fire in particular? Yeah, well, growing up in Trinity County, fire was just a huge part of living there. You know, and I remember as a kid being very scared of wildfire. And we, and my family was pretty involved. My mom used to be a cook on wildfires. So she'd be gone in the summer um, cooking huh. for fire crews and we'd go visit her. And so it was just kind of a big part of my childhood was this theme of, of fire. And when I went to college, I decided to, um, to take a lot of classes on fire ecology and fire science and try to understand a little more what the natural role of fire was in our forest. And that led me, you know, later to, to really focus on that for my graduate work and to, to get more involved and just to realize how many people are working on this issue and are passionate about it and how we have such a need for it. I became pretty interested in like what all the barriers were and, and why are we not using this tool that we so desperately need in California? What is that community or that cohort like? Like, who are the people who are pursuing prescribed fire as a mitigation technique or as just any sort of beneficial technique for managing California lands? Well, there are a lot of different kinds of folks. And, you know, there are people who work for, for federal and state agencies. So there's that whole agency contingent. But I will say that the, the community of folks that I work with most closely are um, community-based leaders and cultural practitioners, you know, with, with tribes and other tribal organizations. And these folks are, are people who just really care about improving the health of our, of our landscapes and making California more resilient moving forward. So just really inspiring people <laughs> who work on prescribed fire. They're, they're community leaders, they're change agents, they're revolutionary in some way in the work that they do. Do you have much... Um, I guess, do you work much with policymakers or, and or make policy yourself, uh, kind of in that, that fire arena in California? 
I do. I've actually been getting much more involved in policy work over the last few years. And so um, I've I've been working pretty closely with some legislators on, you know, helping inform policy language, helping give ideas. Um, most notably, I guess, last year, I worked really closely with Senator Dodd um, to develop a bill that changed the liability standard for prescribed fire in California. So it, it basically made it so that people who are using prescribed fire will have some protection. And if something goes wrong, um, you know, if they're doing everything they should, but something goes wrong, that they would have the support of the state to come and help them um, get it under control. So that was a really monumental piece of policy that happened last year. That was Senate Bill 332. And and I've been so grateful to work with Senator Dodd and, and his legislative director, Les Vaughn, on that bill. And, and we also worked really closely with the Karuk tribe and other tribal partners on that bill to make sure that the language was really conducive to you know, the, the work that all of us are doing. But there are a couple other examples of policy work that I've been doing as well. One of the one of the big things that we're doing right now is rolling out a new state certified burn boss program. So this is a program that will give folks the the training and the certification they need to plan and implement burns throughout California. So I was actually just in Petaluma this last week hosting that class and bringing 24 people through that program so that we can have more of these qualified burn bosses out working with communities and implementing this important work. That's fascinating. So let's say I want to be a burn boss. How do I apply for that? How do I you know, get involved in that? And what would I learn when I come to your class? Right. Well, it's kind of a long process. It's definitely not an entry level program. It's meant for people who have a depth of experience in prescribed fire because there really is a lot of science and, and art to this work that we do. So if you wanted to become a burn boss, <laughs> I would advise you to, to get involved with your local prescribed burn association and maybe go to some training events and just really work for a few years on getting as much prescribed fire experience as you can. Um, so getting out on burns and really learning, you know, be building that comfort and, and learning those skills around fire. Then there would be a whole list of classes that you would have to take. <laughs> so I would advise you to start signing up for things like fire behavior classes and, um, you know, meeting all these prerequisites. Then you'd get into this class that I just hosted and um, and you'd learn more about burn planning and, and fire modeling and how to actually run a burn on the day of the burn, how to give a good briefing, um, you know, so, and how to how to get all the permits in place and things like that. Then you would actually do a t what we call a task book where you prove competency in a number of areas. And if you could get all of that completed, you would be signed off and become a certified burn boss in the state of California. <laughs> all this just to light things on fire. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So <laughs> on purpose. I don't know if you have this data right in front of you or off offhand, but like what how many prescribed fires do you think? Uh, occur in California every year? And I guess how many take place in the North? How many take place in the South? I guess where do they occur? Yeah, that is a good question. I don't know that I have specific numbers for like the number of projects. Um, it, you know, it's, it's a lot. We have, you know, Cal Fire's doing projects, the Forest Service, the Park Service, all these community-based groups. I mean, there are a lot of actual projects out on the ground. I think in a good year, in recent years, you know, maybe all of those projects would add up to somewhere close to 100,000 acres a year statewide. 
Wow. Okay. But the you know the targets that the state is setting are much more than that. So we know that even if we're burning all collectively 100,000 acres a year, that it's like a drop in the bucket for what we really need to be doing. How many acres should you be doing? Well, I, you know, I am actually critical of these acre targets because I, it doesn't speak to the quality or the strategic location of the projects and things like that. I, I think we need to be really careful. Um, the state and the, the, last year, the, the state of California entered into an agreement with the Forest Service and said that they'd like to collectively treat a million acres a year with prescribed fire and other fuels treatments. Um, but I don't I think that's just kind of like a goal. It's not really it's it's, it's really an arbitrary number. I think. Is it realistic? <laughs> I think it's a, it's ambitious. Let's say that. OK. Uh, and, All right. you know, depending, Very diplomatic. I see. <laughs> and depending on what you're including in that million acres. Uh, it could be realistic. I think a million acres of prescribed fire is not realistic in the current context. I think it's something to aim for. But really, we need to be focusing on how do we empower the people who could do this work? How do we provide the training and the jobs and, you know, the the stable funding to really promote this work? So I don't want to get too hung up um, on on these acre targets because I think they they direct us a little bit in the wrong direction. When you say it's not realistic in the current context, can you elaborate on that? What is the current context? <laughs> yeah. Well, I think so here we are working on all these policy issues. You know, we like, for example, in the private sector, we have no insurance for prescribed fire. And so one of the, the issues that we're working on is developing a state backed claims fund that would cover damages from prescribed fire. So that if something happened and damages were caused, that people would be able to recoup costs. And so the state of California set aside $20 million last year to establish a claims fund, and it hasn't been operationalized yet. So, you know, that's the current context is that we have people who want to do this work. We have people who are seeking certification. We have funding flowing from the state, and yet we have no insurance to cover the work. So are people even going to want to do it? You know, like we have these kind of administrative and structural barriers that we need to overcome before we can really get there. I think another example of that is environmental compliance. So on federal lands, you know, National Environmental Policy Act, NEPA, um, and on state lands, CEQA, they can cause huge delays and, and additional costs and, and really halt some of the good work that is needed to protect the lands that we care about. So I think we need to be looking pretty hard at our environmental laws and make sure that they're actually doing what they were intended to do. Of course, the environmental laws would be uh, the kind of foundations of lawsuits brought by opponents yep. in all likelihood of prescribed fire. So yep. who does oppose prescribed fire in Northern California and why? You know, I don't think there are actually very many people who oppose prescribed fire. I'd say prescribed fire has very solid support from the environmental community and from, you know, the like really from everyone. We identify it as something that really needs to happen. So with the with the environmental compliance stuff, it's not necessarily about lawsuits. It's more about um slow process, you know, that projects can be working through that process for years and years and years and and never happen um, because they're hung up on an ARC survey or they're waiting for, you know, like they don't have capacity to do the surveys that are needed to happen to advance the process. So um, it can be a huge cost to hire a bunch of 
people to come in and help with that work or just there isn't someone to do the work. So I think we just really need to be thinking about the urgency of the issues that we're dealing with in California and assessing those things that are holding us up and how we can overcome them. I think when I hear, you know, CEQA, I'm a little punch drunk from housing fights, you know, people <laughs> using CEQA lawsuits to oppose, uh, you know, housing developments in and around their regions. Yeah. And I remember when I first read or, or heard about you, um, it was in the context of a prescribed fire, you know, somewhat adjacent to a residential community. And I remember there were people who were observing the fire. They were very anxious, very apprehensive, reasonably so. Um, so you, I guess to that extent, do you encounter any, if not opponents, um, you know, folks who are apprehensive about prescribed fire, what it might mean or what, how it might, no pun intended, backfire. <laughs> right. You know, I, I have to say there are those people out there, but I have been working on prescribed fire related issues for 15 years and I have never actually encountered outright opposition to prescribed fire. Sometimes people are curious or, un, you know, they're uncomfortable. They're not really sure what it is. I like to bring those folks out onto a prescribed fire and let them see it. And as soon as people see a prescribed burn, they feel much more comfortable with it. Because I think for most of us, the frame of reference around fire is wildfire. So when we picture a prescribed burn, we just picture a wildfire that's been ignited by people. And um, that feels very uncomfortable. Like we're picturing big flames and, um, it, you know, it's just that's that's what we envision. So you get out on a prescribed burn and much of the time it's burning cooler than we want. And we're trying to get it to burn more. Um, and, you know, people are like, wow, I can walk over the flame. Um, I didn't realize that or... You know, it's going under the trees and it kind of dies out. Like, I didn't know that. So I think it's really important for Californians in general to build comfort with fire, to build a relationship with it, to get out and see what it actually looks like on the ground. And that's a big part of the work that I do. So when you say the insurance part of it isn't really coming through yet, that's just part of the bureaucracy, part of the administrative hurdle that you were talking about earlier, where it's just like there's a system in place that needs to green light that. And that system hasn't yet kind of come around to this idea that it's uh, it's it's a, I guess, a reasonable and accessible way of all the things you're just talking about doing with with prescribed fire. Right. Well, there's a, there's an additional issue there with the insurance piece, because prescribed fire in California is being conflated with wildfire from an insurance perspective. So I think the private insurance market is like something related to fire in California. No, thanks. You know, they're backing out of fire in California and they don't care if it's prescribed fire or wildfire or whatever. They don't want to. They're not interested. It's just too you know, it's, it's, it's too big a can of worms, I think. So what we've seen is that the private insurance market is actually dropping people who historically may have had liability policies covering prescribed firework. So like nonprofit organizations who are doing cool prescribed fire projects or private contractors who have burn bosses, those folks used to have insurance. But as the wildfire issue has grown, the insurance industry has dropped out. So we see the, the state insurance commissioner, Ricardo Lara, he's very supportive of prescribed fire. And he wants to see that engagement by the private insurance market. So actually last week, he issued a letter that I was signatory to alongside him um, that was asking the insurance industry to please re-engage. <laughs> you know, like, please, please, can you come back and help support this work? 
But the problem is that on the private side, we don't have thousands of practitioners who are trying to do this work. It's really a fairly small community. You know, it might be a couple dozen nonprofit organizations and a couple dozen of these certified burn bosses who are looking for policies. So for a private insurer to even take the time to write a policy and to to sell it, it's probably not worth their effort from in their perspective. Interesting. So, yeah, that's where that state backed that 20 million dollar you know, the state of California has stepped in and said, okay, that's not, doesn't seem to be happening on the private side. So we need to provide something. And that's why we've set aside this money to to offer the state-backed solution, which I think is really innovative and cool. Can you give us a quick overview of the wildfire challenges then that face California uh, in 2022, this fire season, I guess, coming up? Yeah. Yeah. We are in a really unique time around fire in California. And I think we're in a crisis, you know, and I don't, I don't want to be alarmist, but I do think that it's important for listeners to understand that we really are at a pivotal moment around fire in California. We have, you know, 150 years behind us of, of mismanagement and of fire suppression. So actually excluding this essential process from these landscapes that, for the most part, are adapted or even dependent on fire. Um, You know, California, if there's one thing we should know about California for this California podcast, is that um, this is a fire state. This is is the most, you know, one of the most fire-adapted landscapes in the country and even in the world. Many of our forests and our grasslands and woodlands were adapted to fire every three to five years in California. So if you think of excluding that for 100, 150 years and all the changes that that has, you know, all the changes that that's caused, it's pretty intense. And then you layer on top of that climate change and drought. And that's where we are today. We're actually at a, a point in time where we we can't even put out all the fires. You know, we saw with the Dixie fire last year that it was actually impossible for us to get that fire out. We, we just couldn't you know, couldn't gain control over it. So I think we're in a moment where we need to be rethinking how we relate to fire and how we approach it and, um, and focus on some, some new strategies. I, I know I'm probably oversimplifying here, but you mentioned earlier about that target of a million acres a year for prescribed fire. We're at 100,000 roughly, give or take a few. Mm-hmm. It just seems like we're either going to burn those million acres through wildfire or going to burn them through a prescribed fire. Do I have that right? Or I mean, they're going to burn either way, right? We might as well do a prescribed fire and, and mitigate that. In the, in the Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I think that it's going to have to be a combination of both. And I think we need to stop rejecting wildfire as being inherently bad. Um, you know, I mean, we are always going to have wildland fires in California. And, um, and so we're not going to get rid of that. Not, and we're not going to be able to do enough prescribed fire to fully supplant wildfire. <laughs> so it's going to be, have to be a combination. And what we need to do is really focus on how we can protect the things that we care the most about. So our communities, our homes, our lives, our forests, you know, what are the, what are the things that we really want to persist into the future? And how can we use the tools we have available to us to do that? And then how can we allow wildfire 
you know, to have a role on the larger landscape again, um, because that that's going to have to happen. And so I think, you know, what, there's one big area of emphasis right now on home hardening and really making our homes more durable to fire so that we're better prepared when the fire actually comes to us and showers embers on our home, that our homes are more durable. And that's a great thing to be focusing on. I have a lot of wonderful colleagues who are working on that. And, um, you know, we need to see the policy changes in place that really promote that home hardening. And then how can we use prescribed fire in really targeted ways to buffer our communities, um, to build resilience in, in the landscapes that we really care about and, and, you know, in our watersheds that provide so many ecosystem services? And then how can we really take advantage of wildfire on the larger scale? You know, if you think about... Something like the August complex, which was our first million acre fire in California, a lot of that area burned in a good way. You know, a lot of that fire looks like it would if we had prescribed burned it. And so how can we go back into those areas that are burning in wildfire and maintain those treatments and actually rebuild that resilience on those landscapes? We, it's not like every area that burns in wildfire is a lost cause. Um, there's a lot of right. good work that happens there that would have taken us decades to do with prescribed fire. That's a great point. Yeah. I mean, is there a part of the firefighting establishment, like say Cal Fire, that goes out to these wildfires and is like, actually, I mean, and very quietly, you know, privately is like, oh, wow, thank God. Oh, <laughs> you know, yeah. Like, you know, no, a lot of this you know, Outside the yeah. wildland urban interface, you know, outside the WUI where the houses are, they're like, oh, wow, this is like total wildland. We really needed this. Yeah. You know? Oh, yeah. No, I mean, a lot of us do. A lot of people who work in fire will say, you know, that actually burned really nicely and did good work. And I think <laughs> right. we need to improve our public messaging around that. I would like to see more, you know, uh, the messages we see now are like more prescribed fire equals less wildfire or, um, you know, prevent wildfire. And, and of course, we need to be doing what we can to to control wildfire. We don't want things just out, totally out of control. But I think we need to take the opportunity to appreciate that fire is a part of California <laughs> and that these wildfires are, are basically doing treatments on the landscape that we have the opportunity to now maintain in perpetuity. And so it's an, it's an opportunity. It's not just um, a loss. And that nuance gets lost in the, in the public messaging. And I think the pu we need to bring the public along with us on some of this work. You've articulated a few challenges and um, struggles that you've seen in California in your time working with the Prescribed Fire Council. And I'm curious what you think the biggest challenge California faces is overall. And how can that be surmounted? I think one of the biggest challenges we have around fire in California is we don't have enough people engaged and in this work. You know, we we for a long time professionalized fire so that it was, you know, just something that our fire management agencies did and took care of and like no one else was really involved or included in that. And I think we're realizing now that that we're in a crisis and we alongside that have a workforce crisis where we literally don't have enough people to do the jobs. You know, we have fire crews, forest service fire crews in California that are like completely understaffed and some of them are just altogether vacant. We don't have enough people 
to work on these issues. So we need to think outside the box about how we get more folks engaged. And that's really the work that I do is how do we get communities more involved? How do we empower landowners to do this work themselves? You know, how do we give cultural practitioners and tribes the, the um, sovereignty to practice their traditions that were so essential <laughs> before we took those tools away from them? Um, so it's really about creating space for all these different people to bring their heads together and their good ideas together. And, you know, one of the other things I work on a lot in my, in my program is promoting diversity in fire, uh, you know, and bringing more women into it and more people of color and just really focusing on like bringing all the best ideas and talents to the table and, and moving away from this homogenous way that we've approached fire in the past. In your experience discussing California with folks outside the state, what do you find they most misunderstand about California? Well, I think, you know, a lot of people think of California as all being like Southern California beach life or something. And and what they don't understand and what I love the most about California is how diverse we are. I mean, like I said it about Humboldt County, but it's true for California as a whole. We have almost every habitat type possible in this state. We have desert and old growth forests and we have the highest mountains and we have amazing fish runs and we have beaches and I mean it's just we have rainforests. It's it's such an incredible state. I think we have to be the most diverse state in the country ecologically and alongside that socially, right? We have so many different kinds of people who live in California and they have such rich histories and perspectives and smarts and um, we, I think we've got a lot to work with here. And so we just need to open those doors and unleash that interest. And those people are coming to the table for fire. You know, they're, I'm here to, to give them that open door <laughs> to be part of this solution. And I really think if anywhere can tackle these problems, it's California. We end every episode with the same question for all guests. Get ready. Who is your favorite Californian past or present and why? Ooh. Such a hard question. Um, you know, I I think my mom is my favorite Californian. I I think she is this this quintessential Californian. She grew up in in the L.A. area, and her dad was a California watercolor artist, um, kind of a semi famous watercolorist who worked on movie sets and um, super interesting guy. And and when my mom was kind of a seventeen or eighteen, she moved up to Northern California to a little town called Boonville in Mendocino County. And that's where she met my dad. And my dad was living in a treehouse, <laughs> you know, like real hippie parents. And I just love their adventure and their their spirit of like living all over the world and traveling and then settling in rural Northern California and bringing all that depth of California knowledge with them and raising these two daughters who, um, you know, have done really interesting things. My sister lives in Alaska and she she was the mayor of Anchorage. And I always think it's funny that like she could become the mayor of Anchorage having been from California. I mean, that says something about her charm <laughs> and, and, and her smarts. So yeah, I think my mom is just this uh, real icon, iconic Californian person and, and really an inspiration. What's your mom's name? Her name is Tara Quinn. Tara Quinn, shout out to Tara. <laughs> favorite Californian. Well, listen, Lania Quinn-Davidson, it's been such a pleasure having you on What is California. Thanks for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. All right, there you have it. 
How about that, huh? Lania Quinn-Davidson, thank you so much to Lania for being on this week's episode. I learned so much and uh, <laughs> had a good time along the way. That was very, very cool. So I hope you enjoyed it as well. Um, and, uh, you know, if and when you ever uh, see one of those fire crews out there just, you know, burning things on purpose, it's for the best, folks. It's for the best. Just let them do their jobs. Let's try and uh, work together to mitigate fire risk and uh, manage these forests and do what needs to be done in California. You can check the show notes for this episode to learn more about the University of California Cooperative Extension and uh, the Northern California Prescribed Fire Council. And uh, I'll also include a link to episode 11 of What is California, which features Jamie Lowe. Jamie's a journalist and author who wrote a book last year called Breathing Fire about female inmate firefighters who fight California's wildfires. It's a fantastic book, and that was a fantastic conversation as well, talking about fire and forest management in California. Lots to learn there. So these are kind of cool companion episodes. I'll link to that in the show notes as well. I hope you get a listen if you're interested. What is California is produced, hosted, and edited by me, Stu Van Ersdale. Our theme music is by Sound Supreme. You can follow What is California on Twitter at WhatCalifornia and subscribe to the free Substack newsletter at whatiscalifornia.substack.com. That will get you a free podcast episode in your inbox every Thursday and a free roundup of Weekend Link's cool California stories in your inbox every Friday. If you'd like to shout us out via email, I would love that. You can find me at hello at whatiscalifornia.com. If you want to send questions, comments, suggestions, recommendations, concerns, love notes, hate mail, things I haven't even thought of yet, that is where you can send them. Please subscribe to What Is California wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the show, I would love it very, very much. I would appreciate it so, so much if you rated and reviewed What Is California on Apple Podcasts because that does help new listeners find us. That is going to do it from What is California HQ in beautiful Sacramento, California. I've been so pleased to have you here. I look forward to seeing you next time. Until then, remember, as always, keep your eye on the bear.